Welcome to the Open Book Unbound podcast. Morning, Marjorie. Hey, Claire. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? It's July. I'm good. It's summer. Does it feel like midsummer to you yet? I, do you know, I think just having the kids around more always makes it feel like summer because all their sort of after-school activities stop. So dinner becomes a much more leisurely affair and, you know, we can eat later. And if it's a nice evening, just sit out and grab a salad or stick something on the barbecue. Whereas during the week in term time, it's much more of a military operation with one coming in from cricket and the next one wanting to go out and ride her bike with her pals. So, you know, the window to get the food on the table is small. So yeah that sort of leisurely lack of planning for me it definitely feels like summer it makes me laugh though because in the states summer begins really on the first of june memorial day kind of weekend and school lets out you know we we had june july and august off so by the time we get to this point by the time you get to fourth of july you're really in high summer or midsummer and that's the point at which i remember as a kid being kind of almost bored of summer already because you'd had four or five weeks off by then and you had another four or five weeks at least if not six weeks to go more but I laugh because as parents I'm pretty sure by the time they hit 4th of July they were also ready to see the back of their kids yeah by that point you'd had your kids home for four weeks and the kind of excitement of not having to get up and not having any routines had really worn off and the excitement of being at the poolside every day and being bored had also worn off so by that point you were kind of like one big barbecue fireworks extravaganza for 4th of July and then what just an awful lot of heat to come so it feels really different here because our kids have only just broken up. It's a much shorter summer, so don't really get... I mean, I, I never get to that point with my kids until sort of right before they go back to school. I think, okay, now it's time for you to have a bit of routine and for me to have a bit of quiet. But I'm not there yet. I think that's the difference maybe between your summer experience and my summer experience is those long, hot days by the pool. It's more sort of open the curtains and check out the weather and see what's going to be possible. Yeah, imagine just a sort of desperately hot day after day. It sounds wonderful, but when you get to the sort of eighth week of it. I definitely remember buying kind of winter jumpers. We didn't wear school uniforms. You know, winter jumpers in August for like going back to school and literally thinking, I cannot imagine putting this on my body. You know, imagine being somewhere where it's really, really hot, like the Canaries or something in summer and then buying woolly jumpers. You know, I remember thinking, I don't want to buy a coat. I don't even want to try a coat on. It's so hot out there. And then sure enough, by September, you know, you were desperate to put on those kind of autumn things. But for me, it never gets warm enough in Britain to have that sense so I always get to the end of August and think wait a minute my body's not ready for it to get a bit cooler I'm kind of still need that shock of heat so maybe when the kids get bigger we'll start summering in the states or you never know there's still time left we could have a not rainy book festival season in August and have heat so you never know that would be amazing so today we are really excited to be sharing two poems by Emily Dickinson, not one but two, and a short story, Horses for Courses, by Judy Upton. Will I get us cracked into the first poem? Why don't you? It's called, although I don't think her poems ever had titles, it's actually number 112, 112. It's called Success is Counted Sweetest. Success is counted sweetest by those who ne'er succeed to comprehend a nectar requires sorest need. Not one of all the purple host who took the flag today can tell the definition so clear of victory as he defeated, dying, on whose forbidden ear the distant strains of triumph burst agonized and clear. 
I don't know that we've ever talked about Dickinson before on this podcast. Have we? I'm just trying to remember. Maybe hope is the thing with feathers. Yes, I think we, we have talked about that one. She's so remarkable with rhythm and rhyme. When I read her poetry, particularly when I read it aloud, I almost feel like there's a song to it. And I think that's exactly the effect of the care that she takes with the rhythm and rhyme. It feels very technical when you read it aloud, technically correct. Yeah, which is stunning because she never shared her poetry at all. You know, what we know about her is that they were hidden away and she wanted them all burned. Thank goodness um, her family didn't burn them. But yeah, it's so, the rhythm is perfect. The rhymes are really terrific, you know, unexpected. And it's so tight. It's only 12 lines. Yeah. And for me, you know, it's kind of obvious what it's about, but it's always deeper than what we expect with her. About that idea that you can't enjoy something unless you feel a need of it. And I'm not sure that's true. I mean, I think, you know, on its face, it's about only those who understand defeat can understand success. But I think it kind of goes deeper than that for me. It goes to that idea that unless you really want something, you don't enjoy it, which is different. That's what I had thought, you know, when when I had read it, it gave me that sense of when you long for something and you can't have it, it makes you want it more. It's a bit like, you know, kind of flipping that throwing your pearls to swine, you know, that idea that swine don't want pearls, you know, there is a connection there between what is needed and what is enjoyed. That idea to comprehend a nectar requires the sorest need. And for some reason, and you won't be surprised, it made me think of honey because I am a honey adorer. I'm a little bit obsessed about honey. But you know, it's the kind of thing that if you, if you gave someone caviar, and didn't tell them that it was, you know, this incredible, expensive, rare thing. I don't know how you all feel about caviar. I should say I don't eat it. You know, people maybe maybe would think it was disgusting and not want it. You know, there is there's there's a connection between our desire or understanding that something is something we should desire and our enjoyment of it. Yeah, and I think for me what's what's really interesting in that little stanza is that she picks the word comprehend. Mm. Because for me, I mean my brain reads that as taste. Yeah, you know, exactly. I know, I know, I know. She's going for understand, and but that when I was reading that, I kind of stopped and went, "Oh, that's interesting. Why didn't she use taste? We're talking about nectar. It's those little sort of brain jumps that I really enjoy." You know, it feels like an okay poem, like a kind of not happy, not sad poem, but I actually de- think it's desperately sad because it's about never getting what you want. So, you know, we started by chatting about, you know, only those who really want something can enjoy it. But actually looking at it again, it's about those who never get it. You know, so it's forever that striving for something. Those who want success the most and never get it think it's the best thing. So, you know, those who want diamonds and think they're the best thing are the ones who don't get it, whereas the ones who have them don't enjoy them, I guess. I don't know. And and I suppose it's, you know, the last stanza helps us with that, the idea that the one who's dying understands triumph, the sweetness of triumph. But can't have it. And who will never have it, presumably, if you're dying. <laughs> exactly, and has now that has passed. And I think that equating what is success, what do we count as success, what is success for each individual, and equating that with victory as well has kind of made me think. Because I think for different people, success means a different thing. Yeah, and if you think about you know, the kind of American immigrant mentality, success is working, 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 working. It's never achieving anything in particular. It's not a hamster wheel. It's a kind of forever escalator that you can never get up to the top of. So, you know, there is no definition of success. Success is to keep climbing. That is success. So, and I feel like that's what she's saying. It's It very much drives with that idea. Success is the keeping going. And when you have one thing, put it setting your eyes on another because that's success is having the thing that you can't have. 
um, which by definition means it has to keep changing. It's the idea, isn't it, of constantly striving for more, whatever that more is, whether it's, you know, more money in a work context or more anything. Which is kind of goes in the flies in the face of what we talk about so much. I was trying to be in the moment and enjoy where we are in the moment. This is the opposite of that. It's always striving, always wanting something else. But little we know about Dickinson's life is that she didn't get very much of what she wanted in her life, I don't think. And kind of when you know understand a little bit about her biography, you can understand a bit more about where this sentiment might come from because she never would have and she was never going to. And I think the knowledge of that, knowing that you're never going to get what you consider to be success must be, you know, that's a really sad and difficult thing to live with. Yeah, which is presumably why she wrote these little beautiful poems because she spent her energy doing that. So, Shall I start with the story? Yeah, great. Horses for courses. You don't need a garden or allotment to put something in. Carol was trying to organise an online version of the town's flower and vegetable show. This year, with the town hall closed and public gatherings still banned, the idea was to take a photo of anything you'd managed to grow and upload it to the show's website. Well, we've plenty of daisies, love, said Roy, looking out of the kitchen window at our weedy lawn. Or is there a prize for best dandelion? We'd be in for a chance there. To be fair, I did have a miniature rose in a pot that my sister gave me for my last birthday. It was a bit spindly where I'd forgotten to water it, but it did have one nice yellow bloom. There was a class for a single rose and the prizes were vouchers you can spend at the garden centre. If I won, I might be able to buy a healthier looking rose with that. One each side of the back door. That would look all right. I realised at that point that Roy was no longer listening, his attention drawn back to some old black and white film on talking pictures. I took the rose photo on my phone. I was quite pleased with it. Even when you enlarged it, it was still all in focus. And thankfully, there wasn't an aphid in sight. I showed Roy the website for the show with all the categories you could enter. There's a class for just about every flower, plant, vegetable or fruit under the sun. Carol rang to say she'd had loads of entries already. Competition is going to be tight. Roy wondered why we didn't enter an apple, banana and orange from our Tesco's delivery into the three different fruit class. Because that would not only be cheating, I patiently explained. But everybody would know there's no way we could have actually grown a banana on our patio. Carol and the rest of the organising committee were taking the whole thing very seriously and doing it all by the book. You had to abide by the rules and play fair. The photos would be up on the website by that Thursday and then voting would open. It was judged anonymously, so you could, for example, vote for number three in the outdoor cucumbers and number ten in the cacti or other succulents. The votes would then be counted and the winners declared. So you can't cheat or rig it, Roy asked. Definitely not. That's brilliant, Steph. That's really brilliant, he said. For a minute, I thought he was being sarcastic. I've never known Roy to take any interest in our tiny garden, unless he's having a couple of mates round for a barbecue. Cutting the lawn and trimming the wild bit at the back is always left to me. 
The next day, I overheard Roy on the phone to his mate Jim. I wasn't surprised to hear him lamenting not being able to have a little flutter. I'm surprised Roy, Jim and our neighbour Davy don't yet have their own personal stools down the local bookie. Betting on the football is their big thing. Well, I say big, but Roy's pretty sensible, really. He doesn't bet what he can't spare, and when he has a little win, he always treats me to a meal out, even if it is down the chippy. The next thing I heard, whilst shamelessly eavesdropping, was slightly more surprising. Roy actually uttered the words, Butternut squash. Really? Butternut squash? Will we stop there for a moment? (laughs) Yeah. Okay, first, tell me, flutter? A bet. Well, a little flutter is, doesn't necessarily mean it's just a little bet. It just means I'm off to have a, like a wee pint. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. But it's kind of quite colloquial, I would say. You would probably only use it if you were a person who would have a little flutter. Have you ever placed a bet? Never. Ah, I always bet on the Grand National, randomly. Do you go into the shop to do it? No, you can do it on the app. But in the, in, in the olden days, my dad would get us all to choose a horse and then we would all put, I suspect it was a pound back in those days, on the horse that we picked. And I would see which horse had won its last couple of races and we did the paper that all that morning deciding which horse was going to be mine. And my little sister would always look at the colours the jockeys wore and pick <laughs> the one she liked with the name she liked. And I have to say, she was more successful and got her pound increased more frequently than I did. (laughs) So funny. Yeah, the kid's grandpa used to do it. He used to read out all the names and they just chose by the basis of their names, which I thought was funny. Every once in a while, one of the children would make 20 quid or something. But I've never, literally never done it and never been in a shop. And I'm surprised at how many of them there are in this country. But also, yeah, the idea of doing it online, it's not something, I think, pick up a Probably because it's really highly regulated in the States. You know, you have to go to Atlantic City or Vegas or, you know, very specific places to gamble. It's just not legal. So, but it's really common. You know, that that's the other thing. I used to think of it as a kind of thing that you went away for the weekend and played the slot machines or something. So many people, it's part of their kind of weekly life. Not in a big way, but in a kind of just a bit of fun like it is here. What do we make of this Roy character? Um, he feels quite sort of uninteresting. <laughs> <laughs> we don't want to hang out with him do we <laughs> yeah we don't want to hang out with Roy I don't think I think the fact that he, he only takes an interest in the garden when he's having a couple of mates around for a barbecue and he's quite flippant when Carol is trying to discuss with him the fruit and veg show and he's throwing in comments about daisies and dandelions I mean he could just be being funny you know I, th- I love that do you think they have a we've got plenty of daisies but the idea of putting a banana up is quite funny I think do you not think he's just being jokey? Maybe flippant. Maybe I'm being too hard on him. And it feels like, I mean, what I'm trying to get a sense, I, again, having not grown up in this country, the kind of summer, for, I mean, we had, you know, fairs, the state fairs, where you would bring your sort of prized, whatever, usually animals to the fair and they would win. And if you wanted to be a farmer or whatever, or work the land, you could join 4-H, I think it was called as a young person. But I don't ever remember the kind of prize for the biggest onion or the best carrot or those sorts of things. Did you have them when you were? I would identify that as quite a sort of an English countryside type activity. I mean, I'm sure there are fairs. I mean, there's a big country fair and bigger, but it's not something that I ever was aware of growing up. Horticultural society shows. 
I have been to the flower show down in Chelsea. I don't know if you've, <laughs> you've ever done that. Yes. I had a pal who had a spare ticket and I once got the train down and spent the day there. Yeah, I went with work once, but it was like a corporate event, you know, and it felt, it didn't feel very much about the plants, let's just say. And it was interesting to see, but it wasn't the kind of thing that you could do in your own garden normally. No, and really. it's definitely not competing onions and butternut squash. <laughs> I would quite like to see that though, but I think part of the difference is in Scotland, I'm not sure our growing season's long enough to be getting them like you know we get things but we're never going to get them to be very large unless we have a really rare year but I guess that's the fun of it really isn't it and when I had an allotment there was quite a lot of we've had a bumper year of purple sprouting broccoli you know people just leave piles of it out for everybody else to have because there was no way they could eat it all but there was no competition in that way but she also seems quite into it as well, doesn't she? She's on it. Yeah. I mean, and what makes me laugh is that she seems to be on it as a person who only has one rose, which is not being very well looked after. <laughs> yeah, I think she maybe sees this as an opportunity to take part this year <clears throat> because ah. it's do photos and upload your photo. Whereas maybe in other years, it's not something that she would have engaged with or done. Right. Okay, that makes sense. Because I was thinking she's a gardener, but then why has she only got one plant that has a flower on it and when then when she says there's no bugs on it (laughs) that made me think she's not much of a gardener so why is she interested in this at all i think she wants the vouchers Ah. for a new rose (laughs) (laughs) and carol must be her pal because she's rung her saying you don't need to come on you know but it did make me laugh you could just walk around anywhere and take a picture of anybody's stuff in their front garden i hadn't even thought of that that shows (laughs) how your mind works it never occurred to me that you could take a picture of somebody else's flower and cheat have you not noticed me out in your garden this year taking pictures of all sorts of things? And I wonder if any of this actually happened because it, it does seem like, you know, when he says, oh, there's no chance, no way to cheat. So you can't cheat. Well, it strikes me as you could absolutely cheat and buy the flower from Tesco. I don't seem to understand particularly how it works, but I'm not sure that we really need to as readers. In my head, it's a little small village and everybody's it's just a way of connecting people. So maybe the sense is that you would know if someone had cheated. <laughs> Because you probably could march around and demand to see it through the window. Exactly. Shall we keep reading and see what happens? Yeah, why don't you? I mean, of course, I know what a butternut squash is. But Roy's very much a burger and chips kind of man. I don't recall him ever wanting to spend time in the vegetable aisle. He once told me the efforts he'd go to as a kid to avoid eating anything green. Pockets were filled with peas and lettuce leaves shoved down his underpants while his mum wasn't looking. On the afternoon of the virtual horticultural show, Roy had invited Jim and Davy round. We'd a bit of a boozy, socially distanced lunch in the garden. Not wanting to stay out in the hot sun, I'd left the guys out there chatting and came in to check on how my entry to the flower show had done. My rose was somewhat disappointingly unplaced. This was despite it looking more attractive than the one in third place, which looked like it had come off worse in a fight with a caterpillar. Suddenly I heard a roar go up in the garden. Roy was doing a silly little victory dance. Jim was groaning in mock agony. I opened the French windows to eavesdrop. Come on, hand it over. That's ten quid you owe me with my onions coming in first past the post. Nah, it's only a fiver, Roy, mate. You changed your bet to the favourite, remember, at five to one. Yes, hollered Jim at this point. Oh, yes, first in the hollyhocks, first in the fuchsias, the boy done good. Now I happened to know, for a fact, that Jim lives in an eighth floor flat and come to that, where had my Roy got the onions? 
Surely he hadn't bought them in the supermarket and cheated by taking a photo entering it. I rushed outside to get to the bottom of the matter. It was Jim who explained it to me. The guys hadn't actually entered the flower show at all. None of them had grown a single flower or a vegetable. What had happened was that with no live sport on the telly due to the COVID restrictions, Roy had suggested instead they bet on the results in the show. Jim had kept the book and set the odds, and all three of them had studied the entries online in great detail. They'd enlarged the photos and deliberated over blemishes on apples, crumpled dahlia petals, and crooked carrots. It was a bit like checking the form of a racehorse or a football team's lineup, Davy explained in all seriousness. Well, you won't be doing that again for a while, I told them, not entirely approvingly. The show's an annual event. Roy grinned. Ah, we won't need to. The horses and the footy are back on next weekend. It seemed this would be both the first and last time they had been 20 to 1 odds on a butternut squash and a vase of blue hollyhocks had come in first past the post. I put my rose in its face in pride of place in my windowsill. I may not have won the cup, but it was still a winner in my eyes. That's so funny. They got their uh, betting after all. It's such a funny idea, isn't it? The idea of betting on a show. I mean, it just makes me wonder why. Is it just boredom? Is it like pandemic boredom? (laughs) Yeah, well, I don't know. But that desire to bet on anything. I mean, I've heard of that before, you know, bet on what color the Queen's outfit is going to be when she appears on the first day of Ascot. And can you can you actually place a bet on those things? Yeah, yeah. You can pretty much bet on anything. I wonder that, maybe we should start betting. Maybe we should have a week where we try betting because I kind of wonder how you have the time for it. But then maybe it just becomes a kind of hobby. It's a sort of thing that you think, what could you bet on? Or I think it's almost irrelevant what you're betting on. It's the thrill of being right or not right. Um, it strikes me as just something to have the lads around and chat about. You know, it's just a... You know, a bit like a quiz night. Yeah, the pastime. Passing the time of day. And then she feels a bit of a sad character, to be honest, because she's sort of listening in. And we don't know that much about them, but I'm not sure. You know, she's always eavesdropping or trying to overhear what they're doing. And it almost feels like she's not part of the gang, which she obviously isn't part of the lads gang. But but she seems quite comfortable eavesdropping. She's, she's admitting it to us in the story. She's got no shame about the fact she's doing it. I was just thinking about this group of men and, the, and connecting it to Dickens and thinking, I think betting's different. I think if you never, ever won anything, you wouldn't bet. I think it's got to be that you sometimes win, which is, you know, why Emily Dickinson's poem is so sad because, you know, she's saying it's, it's so sweet for people who don't have it. But I actually think in this context, you need a little bit of winning, otherwise you wouldn't bother. And I guess between them, they'd all, that's almost like a closed bet, isn't it? So someone's going to win. It's like playing poker. Someone's always going to win in your gang. So at least, you know, it's not like playing the lottery where you just spend the money and someone wins, but it's mostly not someone that you've ever seen. Um, I think we're going to look at another one of her poems. Now. Yeah, we are. Shall I read that one? Yeah, please. So this one is, as Margie said before, her poems tend to be numbered and then just take the first line of the poem as a title. So this one is 348. I would not paint a picture. I would not paint a picture. I'd rather be the one, its bright impossibility to dwell, delicious on. And wonder how the fingers feel whose rare celestial stir evokes so sweet a torment, such sumptuous despair. 
I would not talk like cornets. I'd rather be the one raised softly to the ceilings and out and easy on through villages of ether, myself endured balloon by but a lip of metal, the peer to my pontoon. Nor would I be a poet, it's finer, own the ear, enamoured, important, content, the licence to revere, a privilege so awful, what would the dower be, had I the art to stun myself with bolts of melody. Yeah, so this is about doing, not talking about it, right? Or at least it yeah. is for me. And and the fact that she chooses not to be doing, not to be the artist, but to be the audience. Yeah, or the thing. I mean, it, it was, I'm not sure even, I guess the coronets maybe changes that, but I, I was thinking she'd rather be the one doing rather than the one painting about it. You know, she'd rather be the... Yeah. Ah, okay, so she'd rather... She'd rather be the person experiencing what's happening in the picture than reporting yeah, it. Yeah, so maybe you're right. It, it, it does, it could be re- read the other way too, for sure. I'd rather be the audience member, but I'd rather be the ear, I suppose as the listener, but I think it's about rather than describing it, experiencing it. So I'd rather hear the thing rather than hear it written about, rather than singing like the cornet singing a tune about something else. I would rather be the one experiencing that uplift that's you experience through the poem. It landed with me in that she was saying she would rather be enjoying the products of the, the art and, you know, t- taking the joy of the music and the, the art and the poetry and benefiting from someone else's labor on creating the art than be the person making it. But I can t- completely see your interpretation as well. And, you know, that idea of like enamored, impotent, content, sumptuous despair, it feels like she wants to be the one doing the experiencing but I I guess maybe it's the question of who's doing the experiencing is it it is absolutely the artist and the audience and it's the transaction you know between an artist and an audience is something happens but they're both experiencing it it's just that the artist is also then conveying that experience to if that makes sense you know the poet is experiences something and then writes about it and by writing about it then you know transmits it to a reader because I thought it was quite an ironic thing to say I would rather not be the poet because she is the poet you know, mm, yeah, um, and she must know she's the poet because she's writing. You know, she's writing about it, obviously, because we can read it. She didn't know we would be reading it. You know, she is choosing to put it down. But maybe she didn't perceive. Maybe it's this whole audience question again that she never perceived herself as a poet because she never published her work and therefore she never had an audience. Or maybe the value is in the experiencing it in the first place. How you choose or not choose to transmit it doesn't matter. And maybe that's what she's saying is actually the experience is the important thing so relaying it to other people you know the value is in us going back to the initial experience or the initial you know if you're a painter that initial experience of seeing something rather than needing to translate it for someone else our our own view it's quite a selfish thing artists do i say that as you know a writer too but we take our perspective on things and try and translate it for other people or put it into a way that's understood by other people and it is a way of making connections which you know we're all about but it also is an incredibly self-centered way of thinking or doing or being in the sense that somehow your view matters i think it's quite an exposing thing as well because it's almost letting people into your thoughts and depending what you're writing about those could be you know innermost private thoughts on some 
experience or, you know, something that's happened to you, you're caught between that idea of wanting the story to be heard and wanting that information out there. But at the same time, to make it engaging, you almost have to really expose a part of yourself. Or make it feel honest. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's a, I mean, even I think I've said to you before, you know, I find I do a lot of reading of work on a stage and it always feels like undressing, (laughs) which I should say, I don't feel comfortable undressing in front of strangers, but you know, it does, you you feel incredibly exposed. And I I do think it does matter if you're reading about things that are really personal, but it doesn't always, I think I can do a whole set of poems around Ling or fishermen or something that's not really connected to my own story, but there's something about it that feels incredibly exposing. And I I think it's what we were just talking about, that there, it is about admitting and articulating, sort of identifying, articulating, and then admitting your own view on things and how, so there's something incredibly personal, even if it's the way that you describe the way a tree is fluttering in the wind, that's letting people see who you really are, you know, and, and as you say, there has to be a level of honesty in it for it to work, I think. And that's got to be true of painting as well and music making. And music making is a great example because, you know, by definition, not hearing the performer's um, the musicians own personal stories but there's something incredibly vulnerable about playing music for other people even if you didn't write it yourself so I think it's incredibly vulnerable when you're playing music you did write yourself but even that if you even if you're singing Bach there's something or playing you know there's something about your interpretation of it that is revealing about who you are as a person which is maybe why she didn't want her work out there and for me this poem's about experiencing it not not the work of getting it out there. And I think as well in the, going back to the the poet stanza, it's the act of putting it down on paper because there's things you you would share about your opinion or your thoughts and things that you might do verbally as part of a conversation and not feel that exposure. But the act of actually picking up a pencil and committing it to writing in a place where it can be returned to. By people you've never met. Yeah. By other people. Yeah. It's that thing we always say that, you know, writers write and then they send them out, their work out into the world. And that's what's great gift to us at Open Book because it means we get to decide what the work means. And the writer may or may not have meant that, but that's not the point. So, but also, as you say, that that's a terrifying and dangerous, feels like a terrifying and exposing thing to do. So I have a question on the technicalities because you have so much knowledge on the form and <laughs> the structure of poems. So if you look at this poem and you'll be able to see it in our newsletter, which is on our website, if you don't receive it by email each week. You can sign up if you'd like to receive it by email at openbookreading.com. But the poem is peppered with dashes throughout. The first and third stanza have them in the body of, of the lines and the second stanza has them at the end of most of the lines in the stanza. Now I know that in general a dash would give you a breath or a space or create space within the poem, but the way she's used it in some places, it feels that it interrupts what you're reading. Um, well, I think, I mean, there, there have been PhDs done on Dickinson's dashes, so I wouldn't um, claim to know. But my the general sense, I think, is that she's using them as a kind of breath or a comma. So she wants, she's using them in the way that we might now use space in, you know, I think formally then we wouldn't have done it. I mean, um, but now, you know, you get poets who are leaving spaces, gaps on on the page so that you're asking your reader to take a break or take a slow down or take a moment. And I suspect that's what she's doing here because, interestingly, she doesn't often use a huge amount of punctuation, but at the end of the poem, if you go to our website and look, she stops using dashes at the end. She She uses commas, except there is a dash in the last line. 
So it's an interesting mix of the two, I'd say, you know, in the middle of the second stanza, it's, she's got this line and out comma and easy on. I don't know why she's chosen a comma there rather than a dash, because you would, you know, my thing is used to just be consistent and she's totally not being consistent. So they must mean slightly different things to her, but I'm not sure why she's chosen them. And probably too, because I don't think there's a huge amount of editing. You know, there's not versions and versions and versions of her work. That's true, yeah. So, yeah, I think she meant them to be different things, but I've always read them as not necessarily a breath or in place of a comma, but certainly a space. You know, because I would not paint a picture as a different thing than I would not paint. Yeah. I'd rather. The, the one that threw me was in that same stanza, which says, whose rare celestial stir. And I wanted to read that as whose rare celestial stir. Then, you know, if you read it the way you did, yeah, it becomes how the fingers feel who's rare, which is interesting. You know, as we, we've talked about a lot, you know, if you break a line or you give the brain reason to pause, it often fills in something else. And then what the writer has written is a surprise what's coming. So I'm not sure my brain would have put celestial after rare um, or stir after that. So there's something about her dashes that are working in the way that a line break might work for me in a poem, which is that you, you have a nanosecond where your brain has to, your eyes have to travel a bit further, like in, usually back into the next line. And in that moment, the brain is thinking of it, the options to come. Which is nice because it, yeah, opens, really it nice. opens work out to the reader and, and it opens work out, but also gets your reader to hook into the poem by coming up with, with three, uh, three possibilities themselves in that nanosecond. They're hooked, you know, into, and they're curious about what you've written. So there's something about her form here that does that for me. But if any of you out there are Dickinson experts, we'd love to hear from you about what you think she was up to. Sadly, we can't ask. I think for me as well, that it gives a sense of possibility. Mm. You know, the, what we're always talking about in poetry, that there are other ways to read or interpret or there's no wrong answer, as it were, when you're thinking or talking or expressing a view on poetry. And I think the dashes really reinforce that sense of it could be any number of things that comes next. Yeah, and I suspect that's what she's after. You know, especially that last couple of lines, had I the art to stun myself with bolts Bolts of what? You know, it could be anything coming of melody. You know, it's not what your brain is going to fit in that, that, that gap. It's going to be bolts of lightning or bolts of anything, you know, bolts of, but not melody. So, yeah, it's given us that little moment to stop and engage, especially in the last line. It pulls us right back in, I think. So, It's been lovely to spend the morning with Emily Dickinson. It has. Yeah. And catch up with you as well. And have a good laugh about the characters in this story and understand a little bit more about... A little flutter, is that what it is? A little flutter? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we'll try it in the month of July. So, um, And we'll be back with you next month. Looking forward to the book festivals, that are, book, the Edinburgh Book Festival that's coming and others are looking ahead to that material and just thinking about what August might look like in Edinburgh and elsewhere. But we're hoping for a sun-filled, pool-sided July of your childhood repeated here in Edinburgh. <laughs> we'll report back in August. In the meantime, yeah. yeah. <laughs> In the meantime, thanks for having us here in your ears today. We've, we've loved um, chatting with each other and having you along. 